Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I feel like we're drinking through a fire hose with all the political news that is roaring at us today, so I want to get right to the panel. By the way, I'm Bill Nygut, and I'm very glad you're all here for today's edition of Political Rewind. Kevin Riley's here, too. He's the boss, the editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Thanks for joining us today, as you do every Thursday, Kevin. Well, it's great to be here, and I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm on the lookout for one of those imitation plastic badges potentially being offered by one of the Senate candidates. (laughs) I love a good political souvenir, and I know you do too. So if anyone out there comes across one, I'm after it. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about that as the show (laughs) continues today. Stephen Fowler is uh, back with us. He's GPB's political reporter. And you're working a long day today, Stephen. Uh, First of all, we should remind people that you are the host and producer of Battleground Ballot Box, a podcast which uh, people can uh, get on any of their podcast platforms. Um, But the reason I said you're working a long day is you're doing an event for NPR tonight. You're going to be part of the Politics Podcast, which is one of NPR's most popular podcasts. The whole group is in town at the Buckhead Theater. Um, and you're going to join them for that show. I think, by the way, there are still a few tickets left uh, for there, that that people can get. There are. There are still tickets left. You can see me and Rahul Bali from WABE on stage. If you've ever wanted to see what it looks like to record a podcast live, it's a bunch of people sitting around with microphones, kind of like Political Rewind. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. Well, good luck with that. And thank you for uh, extending your day by joining us this morning. Tia Mitchell. Washington reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is back with us as well. How are you, uh, Tia? I'm doing great. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. All right, <clears throat> let's get right to it. Kevin, The a big story broke last night, <clears throat> excuse me, which um, reminds us once again that when it comes to ongoing investigations and potential criminal uh, charges, Uh, In the fake election saga, Georgia continues to be at the center of the universe. Last night, we learned that a federal judge in California, Judge David O. Carter, who was overseeing a case in which uh, Trump's lawyers, particularly John Eastman, were trying to withhold emails uh, from the January 6th committee, Um, the judge looked at those emails and he said that many, some of them had to be turned over um, because they make clear that Donald Trump had been advised by his attorneys that there was no fraud in Georgia's election. And yet, the president and his lawyers went ahead. First, they filed suit in Fulton County to try to challenge the results in Fulton County. And then, even when they learned that there was nothing to these allegations about all these specific numbers of fraudulent votes, they refiled in federal court. And the judge was very tough, uh, essentially saying this felt to 
him like a criminal conspiracy to defraud the American people. Yeah, the judge made strong statements. And, and to me, you mentioned, you know, we've got this massive investigation or any number of them going on. And what good investigators know is you've got to establish a chronology. You know, one way to prove something is to know what happened when. And what the judge points out is that it, to, to him, it is clear that the president filed lawsuits not because he was actually trying to make a legal case or seeking what, you know, attorneys call legal relief, but just to slow things down, to disrupt the January 6th congressional uh, effort to certify the election. And it is, a, to me, one of the most compelling rulings in all of that's gone on in all of this time that it was clear he and his lawyers were trying to disrupt the election no matter what they say happened. Stephen, uh, we don't know for a fact, at least I don't think we do, whether Fonnie Willis has uh, presented, is going to present any of this to the special grand jury, but it certainly seems likely that this will expand her case, especially as it relates to John Eastman, who she's already called to testify. Right. I mean, it's important to remember that the special purpose grand jury is kind of in stealth mode right now, quiet mode, not really making any public filings or things because it's close to the election. But this news and this ruling certainly is something that probably would fall under Fonnie Willis's radar. And because, I mean, we knew at the time, we reported at the time that a lot of those numbers about dead people and underage people and all the other sort of stuff were not true. And the Secretary of State's office pushed back on it. Local elections officials pushed back on it. I mean, I think I remember like a reporter from 11 Alive going to a dead woman's door and talking to her. And she's like, huh. That's news to me. I didn't know I was dead. So that's not surprising. But what makes it a little more important is that in this lawsuit, when Donald Trump signed his name onto this declaration, he's saying, I swear that everything that's in here is true and correct and everything like that. Maybe this email sheds light on that not being the case. But more importantly, Trump's attorneys who signed their names on the lawsuit also, you know, put their name and their credibility on the line for this. And so if there's evidence that these lawyers intentionally filed a lawsuit full of a bunch of bogus stats that they knew weren't true, there could be consequences at the state and local level from the state bar or even Fonnie Willis, who has made targeting Trump's lawyers uh, one of the more visible aspects of this investigation. Um, Tia, you know, uh, the same judge, David O'Carter, has previously uh, accused uh, uh, Trump of uh, possibly being involved in a criminal conspiracy. He was very tough on him in another case. What I think it's important, though, for us to point out here is that what, what's before the judge in this matter uh, is not uh, the question of whether there was a criminal conspiracy or not that he can then somehow take action on. It was simply um, a, an effort to uh, by the plaintiffs to uh, force the release of these emails to the January 6th committee, which, of course, is what the judge ruled uh, he would do. He wanted them to do. Right. And, I mean, to me, this goes back to the fact that not only all these investigations centering around former President Trump, the efforts to overturn the election, yes, a lot of it has been public, but there's so much more that we don't know about. And these various entities are still digging, you know, and 
in some ways, you know, the House is on a time crunch because particularly if Republicans take control of the House, we know this committee is going away in just a couple of months. Um, but that doesn't mean they're not still working and they're not still uncovering new information, you know, almost daily possibly. And we might not ever, we're not privy to it, and who knows what the final product will look like. But these kind of rulings like this help us see how much they're working behind the scenes to get to the truth. Um, Stephen, I, I, it's a very small number of emails, I believe, that the judge said had to be released to the committee. But they are certainly emails that continue, prove that seem to prove that uh, Trump was well aware uh, that he was uh, lying when he said there was fraudulent voters in Georgia. Right. I mean, the the text of one of them says, although the president signed a verification for this filing back on December 1st, he has since been made aware that some of the allegations and evidence proffered by the experts has been inaccurate. That's <laughs> that's kind of hard to square with uh, what you're supposed to do as a lawyer and what you're supposed to do when you sign these declarations. Um, and all it takes is that one email and that one you know that one piece of evidence saying that there's knowledge for Fonnie Willis to make a case and and one thing to also remember is that it does appear likely that one path Fonnie Willis could take here in Georgia is exploring a RICO case and that would be a racketeering case and it's a more narrative prosecutorial tool where she can paint this broad picture of all the different people and players and pieces and evidence. And just one email like this could be a key tool to paint to a jury to say, look at all these people. They conspired. They were part of this criminal organization to overturn Georgia's election. Kevin, to put a finishing touch on this portion of the conversation, I'd love to point out here that uh, the lawsuit that we're talking about, the first lawsuit, was filed in December of 2020. It was not long after that that Trump was made aware that the specific number of so-called illegal voters, it was 10,315 dead people, 2,500 felons, uh, uh, 2,000-plus registered voters who cast ballots illegally. He was told that was incorrect. That was in December of 2020. And yet, to this day, here we are, October 20th, 2022, and Trump is making the same allegations today about Georgia and other states. Well, not only that, my favorite thing to recall, I mean, besides all these numbers and how made up they were and untrue they were, is that let's say they were all true. And he actually won Georgia. He still lost the election. <laughs> all right. There you go. And yet Georgia has just been a, 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 just a, a burr in his saddle that he cannot get rid of. All right, let's do this. We are in the final couple days of our pledge drive here at GPB Radio. I am so grateful to the many people out there who have sent me notes saying that you've become donors, you're sustainers because you love Political Rewind and the other news you hear on GPB Radio, Stephen Fowler's political reports, among other things. Um, and I know that some of you say, well, we've already donated, so please don't do these pledge drives. Well, the fact of the matter is we really need to uh, because it's your dollars which pay for all the things we do on GPB Radio. So here's an opportunity for you to donate if you haven't done so already. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. 
It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. AJC's Washington reporter, Tia Mitchell, Stephen Fowler, GPB political reporter, and the boss, Kevin Riley, editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, uh, all with us uh, today. I mentioned on the show the other day, very briefly, that one of the uh, kind of surprise issues that came up in last Friday night's debate between Walker and Warnock was the Walker campaign leveled this accusation at uh, uh, Raphael Warnock that his church, uh, he and his church, which uh, uh, they talked about owning a, a, an apartment tower called Columbia Tower, had tried to evict a number of people uh, during the pandemic. And I said at the time, I just didn't know enough about the story at that point to really get into it in detail. Well, Shannon McCaffrey at the AJC has now provided us a lot more detail. So Stephen Fowler, let me just start. I don't want to get, we can't drill down too far into the complexities of this, the simple version of this is Columbia Tower um, is a for-profit uh, company. It does have ties to Warnock and Ebenezer Baptist Church. It's managed by a separate management company. And it is true that in the middle of the pandemic, they issued eviction notices to a number of people that live there. And these are people who are coming out of homelessness. There are people who are dealing with mental illnesses. Um, disabilities. And so uh, the Walker campaign is making the point that uh, they were preying upon these people and it's Warnock's fault. Um, Warnock is pushing back strongly. It, it, tell us what you understand about this uh, story. So basically the argument from Republicans, including the Walker campaign and several right-leaning media outlets, is that Raphael Warnock is somehow responsible for a third-party management company sending out eviction notices or letters intending to evict people in this place because Warnock has preached about not evicting people during the pandemic and other things like that. There are a couple intentional or unintentional aspects of the story that are being left out to try to directly tie this to Warnock uh, that uh, as the AJC has reported and others have looked into that are a little bit tenuous at best. You know, it is true that this apartment complex filed these lawsuits and filed these actions. It is not true that Raphael Warnock is kicking people out of his church. Uh, it is true that it's a closing message of Herschel Walker's campaign and they want to try to attack Warnock and try to tie him to this, even though the reality is a little bit more messy and nuanced and complicated than what these outlets are portraying. I mean, there was a campaign press conference that was a bit of a stunt on Tuesday outside of the apartment building uh, where a bunch of people that were not people living in the building were standing behind Herschel Walker. I, mean, I believe I spotted the Cobb County GOP chairwoman behind him. Um, and Herschel said, you need to go in there and talk to these people and ask Warnock why they're kicking out. Shannon McCaffrey tried to go in and the security guard wouldn't let her in. So she tried to go do the reporting. And so it's just an example of how zero sum this race is for Republicans, especially, but Democrats, that 
you know, anything and everything that has a remote chance of sticking is being floated by campaigns and outside groups and everything to try to motivate people to vote for their candidate or against the other one. Yeah, Kevin, a couple notes about that. Uh, Not a single person was, in fact, evicted. It is true that some eviction notices were served, and in some cases, very few, but in some cases for people who owed very little money, but there were no actual evictions. And Warnock's comeback has been uh, that Walker is sullying the name of Dr. King's church, Ebenezer Baptist Church, and it's disgraceful that uh, he would uh, do that, Kevin. Yeah, I mean, let's face it. They're both in a in a battle for uh, what we have to assume are undecided voters. And what, uh, you know, Warnock has been so successful defining himself since his last campaign as uh, this, you know, pastor and a man of high moral standing. And uh, Herschel's had his trouble with that. And Herschel's just coming back and saying, hey, this guy isn't everything you think he is. I mean, dig deeper, look under his fingernails. And uh, in the end, uh, it's going to be an effort to say, hey, or, or to see who's on the fence and does this matter to them? Um, Tia, weigh in on this. Yeah, I, I be, try not to be too cynical about all of this, but it's like I feel that it's been interesting that looking at particularly the debate in Savannah where it was both candidates, it seemed like Senator Warnock spent more time defending himself against this somewhat flimsy kind of relationship that has been built between him and the apartment building than than Herschel Walker has had to spend in recent days talking about possibly paying for abortions or abusing women or um, downplaying the effect of mental illness. Um, and to me, that has made me, to me, I just find it very curious that, you know, and we, the media, have to. Like, it started out with conservative media, but once it became part of the campaign and part of the attack line, we couldn't ignore it. So, I mean, I, I'm not saying we're wrong for bringing it up, but how did this overshadow, you know, how how has this become a bigger talking point than Herschel Walker's um, controversy is something well, that let, I've let been me, thinking about? I apologize for interrupting at the end there. Well, okay, so I think that at the debate Friday night, you make an absolutely um, uh, important point. That's true. Um, I don't think the media in general has suddenly switched to this. I do think this is a legitimate story that deserves um, investigation, the kind that Shannon McCaffrey, and I'll bet our people at GPB News will look into it more too. But, but Stephen, I, look, let's face it. I, I'm not, I don't think the moderators of the Friday debate were biased toward Herschel Walker. You know, every, every, when you take us, you know, people are passionate about their own candidates and they don't want to hear criticism, you know, of their candidates, whatever, you know this. But I do think it's true that on Friday night, those moderators never pressed Herschel Walker on these issues that have risen to uh, the forefront in the campaign about his violence against women, about uh, the abortion. They asked him, and it was sort of like asked and answered. 
Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I think the debate on Friday was more a promotional event for the media company to put it on than a beneficial meeting for the people of Georgia to see the key differences between these two candidates that could decide a lot of our national politics for the next two years. You know, and it's not look asking questions of candidates is always a fraught thing, whether it's on a debate stage or whether it's in a press conference or whether it's a one on one interview. It's not an easy thing, especially when politicians increasingly have even more incentive to just bluster or redirect or just straight up not answer the question. I mean, we saw at the Atlanta Press Club debates, Democrats and Republicans that are likely Georgia's next representatives blow off the debates and not talk to people. So it's not an easy thing to do. But that said, it is disappointing that we heard more about Herschel Walker's opinion on if the Atlanta Braves name should change than answering for a lot of these questions and controversies that have dogged his campaign from day one and especially in recent weeks. And so it's, you know, it it is unfortunate. And also, frankly, too, Raphael Warnock dodged and avoided answering a lot of substantive questions at the debate. And so nearly neither candidate came out giving anything new for the people. And it's hard because you can only press and ask so many times and somebody artfully dodges an answer. So it's, you know, it's all about attention. And it's important to remember, too, that there's a lot more national media attention on Georgia. And they're trying to drive a lot of a narrative about things that at the end of the day, they don't care about because they don't live here and they don't vote here. So I think you'll see the national coverage of this race and the local coverage of this race really start to diverge in these final weeks. Um, uh, Kevin, I would suggest that even with the disruptive influence of Shane Hazel, the libertarian candidate in the governor's uh, debate at uh, the Atlanta Press Club put on the other night, we actually did get a substantive conversation uh, about where Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp stand on uh, crucial issues. But but I want to go back to something you referred to briefly and ask you to expand upon it. We know that in the Friday night debate, Herschel Walker flashed that bag badge, proving he is in law enforcement. Um, and rather than uh, uh, trying to hide it under the rug, his campaign is now embraced it as a uh, as a meme moving forward in the uh, campaign. Yeah, and you know that's a classic maneuver, right? I mean, own it and make and make use of it. Don't run from it uh, and give it to your opponent. Uh, so, I mean, in the world of of uh, I, I would just say communications, crisis communications, political communications, it's clever, it's bold. I mean, whether it convinces voters, of course, is what really matters. And I don't think anybody seriously believes that Herschel Walker ever was or, frankly, ever should be someone in law enforcement. But um, it's really a question of, is it going to change anyone's mind who matters right now in the race, which is a very small slice of undecided voters? Okay. um, We promised on the show that we were going to take a look at races other than those top-tier races, governor and U.S. Senate. And we've done done that to an extent. And um, we got to get to a pledge break. But when we come back, I do want to take a look at the second district congressional race, which most people concede is probably the only competitive congressional race in the state of Georgia. And uh, we'll do that after we send you back to our pledge team, because I know I've said it over and over again. It is your support that pays for programs like Political Rewind. Um, 
And, and so we do need your help in any way that you can give to us. Here's how you can do it. Hey, Stephen Fowler, I mentioned that tonight you're going to be part of the NPR Politics Podcast, which is going to be live at the Buckhead Theater, and that there are still some tickets available, but I didn't tell people how they can get it. Do you know what, where they can go on the web to get tickets by any chance? They can. Um, you can just search NPR Politics Podcast Live, and there will be a nice website for it. Okay, Natalie Mendenhall just told me we tweeted uh, a site where you can buy to our, our Twitter account uh, at PoliticsGPB. So uh, thank you for that. All right, Tia Mitchell, both you and Stephen um, uh, reported on the debate uh, in the second district congressional race between uh, the challenger, the Republican Chris West, and the incumbent Sanford Bishop. Uh, the debate seemed to come down to Sanford Bishop saying, I have 30 years of experience in the U.S. House. You ought to take advantage of that by sending me back. Chris West said it's time for new blood. Apparently, he spent so much time in Washington, he doesn't understand the problems we're facing here in Georgia. Talk to us a little about your take on that debate. Okay, I'll start. Um, I do think there's a clear choice, you know, Chris West is trying hard to, say, turn the page. In a recent debate, he talked about, you know, rotating the crops, you know, an agriculture reference and an agriculture-heavy part of the state. Um, But it's hard to unseat an incumbent, and it's really hard to unseat an incumbent when there's not a big groundswell of dissatisfaction. And that's what Chris West is facing We're seeing, I just actually um, posted in the Jolt this morning, and I have a a new article about this race. Um, I was interested, the the Republican Party, yes, Kevin McCarthy had a private, a fundraiser for Chris West, and he's got all the endorsements. You know, Republicans say, yes, we want Chris West to win because we're trying to retake the majority. But the Republican Party is not spending the way that the Democratic Party is spending to help Sanford Bishop. And even the, the, the GOP chair down in southwest Georgia has started to express frustration on social media and other places saying, Republican Party, why are you guys not engaging in southwest Georgia to help us flip the seat? And to me, that says that the Republican Party doesn't think it's winnable, at least this year. You know, Stephen? Yeah, I mean, I I spent several days down in southwest Georgia in different cities in the district uh, last month to do a big profile of the race. And and it is an interesting dynamic, like like Tia mentioned, that there is an appetite for uh, Sanford Bishop. Uh, You know, there there is Sanford has crossover appeal, uh, white Republican farmers, different things like that. Chris West is targeting those people and is targeting many of the lower income residents of the district saying, hey, Sanford Bishop's been here for 30 years. We're one of the poorest districts in the country. He hasn't done anything to help that. Like it is a very strong, compelling message. And West is one of the most compelling, stronger Republican candidates that district has seen in many years. And Sanford is campaigning like he's got a very good opponent. But there is this disconnect between the 30-year incumbent with outside spending and outside ads, and Chris West, basically him, his brother, and a truck going across this vast district trying to get his message out. And so 
it to me it is an interesting race where Chris West could be laying the groundwork to be the post Sanford Congress member from that district down there, but it's not going to be a flippable race because the resources aren't being split there. But I mean, the thing I'm looking at is the margins. Sanford won by 19 in the last election. Uh, he's not going to win by 19 this time because there's a real uh, competent challenger here. But what those margins are and what the turnout looks like could have more of an impact on Democrats and Republicans at the top of the ticket. And to me, that's far more compelling. I should have pointed out, and then, Kevin, I want you to weigh in, that one of the reasons the district is competitive is that in redistricting, the legislature redrew the lines there. Sanford Bishop has been a safe uh, candidate for re-election for three decades, but now there is a larger uh, Republican population in the district. Kevin? Well, just to reinforce the points that T and Stephen made, as we're sitting here, I just got a fundraising letter from West's campaign. Uh, and uh, he cites, you know, all the trouble farmers are having paying for things like fertilizer. But in the end, he asked for money. So uh, I think that reinforces um, their points that he's got to garner more resources than are being made available to him if he's going to have a chance. All right. Um, we will watch that race unfold down there. I, I think one of the other things we might want to say about this race, Tia, is um, we have to remember that Republicans thought that in the primary, that their primary, that Jeremy Hunt, a black Republican candidate, was a, a strong contender for that seat. And they felt running an African-American Republican against Sanford Bishop, an African-American incumbent, really had the potential to put that race up for grabs. And I think we were all surprised when Hunt was defeated uh, by Chris West. And, and I can't help but wonder if to some extent that's why there's not quite as much enthusiasm among Republicans about that race. Yeah, I mean, it's very similar to what we saw with why Herschel Walker was picked to run against Raphael Warnock, because they're trying to, you know, neutralize whatever boost Warnock gets from being a black man running as a Democrat in a state where black people make up a large swatch of Democratic voters. And they're hoping to peel off some of that support. That's what they hope with Jeremy Hunt. Now, the difference is, you know, Herschel Walker running in a state like Georgia, even though he had not lived in Georgia, he had, you know, been a longtime Texas resident, he's got a lot of Georgia bona fides, of course, right? The UGA, the Wrightsville, he's a Georgia boy. Jeremy Hunt had very thin ties to southwest Georgia, and so it was hard for voters there to say they're going to let this guy come in and be their nominee in a Republican Party um, where Chris West is born and raised in the district. And so I just think they tried to recreate the Herschel Walker magic but didn't quite have a comparable candidate. But, yes, by not having a black person to run against Stanford, and it's a very cynical, again, we're back to the cynicism, it's a very cynical observation about the role of race in politics, particularly the role that race can play when it comes to Republican politics and what they look for when they boost black candidates. Um, which is a whole nother hour we can spend on that. But again, when Jeremy Hunt <laughs> didn't win that primary, it changed the dynamics that Republicans hoped would be, a, it changed some of the factors they hoped would play, um, play in that. And, and Chris West just, again, 
up against a long-term incumbent that people on both sides of the aisle are satisfied with, it would probably be a much different race if it was an open seat and the Democrat was just as yeah. much of an unknown as Chris West. Stephen? You know, the, I, I have heard from several frustrated Republicans that really in the aftermath of 2020, the second district was one of the few areas that really channeled organizing into a more healthy, productive, building up the grassroots, building up enthusiasm and turning it into something that helps future campaigns instead of what we saw in other parts of the state where the pro-Trump wing, the election conspiracist wing, took over a lot of these Republican Party apparatuses. So the second district is one of the stronger Republican organized districts in the state. And to not have that support has just been really frustrating to a lot of Republicans yeah, I've talked to. Sure. Because also, you know, in the 2021 runoff, the second district was one of the districts in the state that had the smallest drop in turnout from November to January. And basically, you know, they feel they pulled their weight to elect Republicans while other parts of the state had people stay home. So, you know, Southwest Georgia has been largely ignored by the Republican Party. And in recent years, the Democrats have really gone all in. So even in a wave year, even in a year where Democrats are struggling, Stanford Bishop and Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock are really, really well positioned there because they're putting the money where their mouth is in that district. And I think you'll see that in the results. Thank you for uh, for explaining that, both of you. Kevin Riley, we know well, full well that when campaigns do opposition research, they sort of stage what they've found uh, to use against their opponent for different parts of the race. And we know that there are issues that they want to see come forward, say, a couple weeks or so before the election. I would argue that's very likely what was going on with this apartment uh, building uh, with the evictions, that they've been ready to use that, but they wanted to wait till late in the race. I also wonder if, in fact, the Jen Jordan campaign uh, has waited until now uh, to uh, make accusations against Chris Carr over an insurance company, Centene, which has had to make settlements in about a dozen or so other states, $485 million in state, for states where there were pharmacy, pharmacy billing uh, issues that Centene uh, was dealing with potentially illegally, but certainly uh, uh, unethically. And, and all of those other states got settlements because the attorney general, the attorneys general uh, went after them. In Georgia, Chris Carr has held his fire, and the uh, Jordan campaign says it's because he and Brian Kemp have gotten significant campaign contributions from Centene. Um, so it's an issue that they're pushing hard as the race comes to a close. Yeah, and it's a tough one. Of course, uh, uh, Jen Jordan's campaign had to do something. I mean, I think uh, you know she's down in some polls, double digits, right? So they've got to, uh, whatever they have available to them, they've got to pull it out now. I think this is a tough one, though, because if you dig into it and try to really understand what's going on, it gets, it gets very confusing. I mean, I get the top-line accusation that this big company did these bad things and they've donated to these campaigns. Um, and maybe that'll stick. Uh, but it's going to be interesting to see if uh, Jen Jordan can really make up that much ground. 
I think that's really an important point, Stephen. Uh, the, the, the best campaign messages are the ones that you can translate very easily. Herschel Walker held a gun to his ex-wife's head and threatened to shoot her. Centene is a complicated story. The apartment building is a complicated story. Yeah, and I mean, I think what we've seen a lot of in Georgia, especially this election cycle, is in a lot of these races, there's a lot of things already baked into the cake before this point. You know, like there aren't very many revelations about Herschel Walker that are probably going to suddenly be the bright line of people saying, oh, I'm, I'm going to vote for him now or, oh, I can't vote for him now. And I think it's same maybe with the attorney general's race. Uh, it's it's a down ballot race, but it's still on the higher end of things. You know, at this point, you probably have an opinion about Democrats or Republicans, and you probably have an opinion about which one you're going to do. But adding in a complicated multi-step accusation allegation against your opponent probably isn't going to resonate the same way as some of the earlier attacks that we saw. That's right. Uh, Jen Jordan can say Chris Carr supports a ban on abortion. And Chris Carr can say, Jen Jordan won't enforce uh, the abortion law in Georgia. Voters get that. Uh, Tia, we're out of time, but are you heading down to Georgia to spend a couple weeks covering races down here? Yep. See you guys on Monday. Great. We'll look forward to having you in the state. Uh, Tia Mitchell, a Washington reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Stephen Fowler, GPB political reporter and host of the podcast Battleground Ballot Box, and Kevin Riley, editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Thank you so much for a terrific conversation on the show today. That's it. We're out of time. We're back tomorrow with another edition of Political Rewind. Uh, Right now, we're going to send you back to our pledge team one more day after this, and then we're back to our full shows. So this is a chance to help us out. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. Go out and get a booster. I got one a couple weeks ago, and I feel invulnerable. See you all tomorrow.